episode three of the Water Break podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss the troubleshooting water and wastewater systems with two of our guests today from New Mexico Rural Water. One of our guests is Fred Black. He's a level three water operator and level two wastewater operator and has 32 years of experience. Our other guest is Ray Ramos. He is the level four water operator, a level three wastewater operator with 20 years in the industry. And I'm very excited to have you two to talk to today about our troubleshooting our water and wastewater systems. I'm sure you two will have a lot of ideas that will help our operators and engineers, especially those engineers, right? (laughs) (laughs) You'll also want to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of the program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. And before we get started today, we want to send a shout out to all the essential workers or our water heroes that are sustaining both our drinking water and wastewater systems during these difficult times. Fred here. Also, I would like to extend that out to the clerks and uh, all the uh, admin people that work with those uh, operators as well. A lot of those guys are keeping the billings going and keeping the money rolling in, so also out. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, gentlemen, so tell me a little bit about your back history. How did you guys get into the water business? Want me to go first? Sure, Fred, be brave. I'll be brave. Okay, so uh, about 32 years ago, I moved uh, to New Mexico from uh, Illinois. Uh, I was working for a clubhouse there for a golf course and uh, got to know some of the guys that were working on some of the system out there on the course. They told me a job opening came up, and that's when I jumped and took advantage of it. And... uh, Put in an application for water, and they hired me right away, running a vacuum truck. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's, sounds pretty fun. There. How yeah. about you, Ray? Well, I just recognizing the need here in the small community that I'm from. Back 20 years ago, the small town that I'm living in recently had constructed a brand new, fully automated conventional water treatment system. Believe it or not, back then in small-town America, the knowledge and experience with automation and computerized-type systems is not very large. (laughs) I come from a self-employed background, and in that background, I had limited computer experience where I could input some inventory, create some invoices and such. So, again... You know, recognizing the need and, and, and these guys not having a lot of uh, computer, computer experience, I thought, you know what, I, let me jump in there and, and try to help these guys out. So once I got in there, they said, well, you know what, why don't you uh, come into this portion of the staff and become a water operator? So got in there and, you know, I'm all about the challenge. I really didn't know 4 to 20 communications or you know, analog, digital, or, or any of those, but eventually caught on to it and really just enjoyed being in the field and, and stayed in it. So nutshell, that's it. All right. So it just kind of sucked you both in then? Pretty much. Most definitely. Okay. Well, we talked about your credentials. Both of you are certified operators. Why do you feel it's important to be certified you know, in water or wastewater operators? Well, um, again, you need to be certified because it is a compliance issue. And uh, so it is required by EPA or the state that you work in 
So the regulatories, uh, they, they do require that. It, it helps us uh, stay in compliance. The ongoing training that you're going to receive once you do become an operator, uh, we do have ongoing changes in the field that the, the new technologies that are coming in that's going to make our job a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So all of that plays a big factor in becoming an operator and uh, the importance of being. Ray, did you want to add? Um, you know, I, I agree with you, Fred. It's it's all about uh, what's required and definitely receiving that important training that comes along with it and being part of that team, building the team, making sure that, that all of us are doing our part. Every person in that team is equally important, and and that operator, uh, his importance is he or she, their importance is equal to all. So that would be it. Right. And, you know, and the one thing that I have noticed over the years is uh, I can show up to a system, and you can tell the unseasoned guys from the seasoned guys, uh, the seasoned guys are going to know where everything is. They're going to know what everything does, and uh, the unseasoned guys that they'll stick me with sometimes, they, they wouldn't be able to even tell me what the daily flows are in their plants. Definitely being certified and uh, being trained uh, is going to be very valuable to your uh, your system. Well, and I like what you guys mentioned earlier, too, is that, you know, continuing that education is not a one-and-done thing. You, you've got to keep learning, got to keep right. growing. This is a, uh, it's a changing field. And, uh, you know, I have been and I've sat down and I've talked with people on site that know everything. And those are the ones that have stopped learning. And I'd rather spend time with the ones that are still learning because uh, they'll listen and they'll usually have something that uh, they can teach you. And so it's it's just an ongoing learning it's part of the job. Right. I agree, Fred. It's uh, this field is is constantly evolving, along with uh, the needs and the technology as well. So, yeah, it's something that these operators just have to keep in touch with and and continue building as they go. So, am I the one that you're help training as well? Oh, well, most definitely. Every time you come over and visit us, we're training you. <laughs> You know, uh, one day I'll learn it all. <laughs> Heather, uh, pull your credit card out. You're buying lunch today. Oh, that's how. Okay, I got that. <laughs> it's all about the team. <laughs> all right. Okay, you guys, let's first talk about water systems. What are the normal challenges for New Mexico in treating potable water or drinking water? Well, uh, Every system's unique here in New Mexico, just like, you know, majority of, of the systems out there in in the states, uh, in the nation. And in New Mexico, uh, probably one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now is drought conditions and water conservation plays a large role in that. So these systems that we're building, we've got to make sure that we're building them in respect to to those conditions. Let's talk about, we, we've got some arsenic issues in some of the tribal areas, maybe some fluoride issues as well. So there's there's many systems out there that are available to help treat these conditions. You know, just understanding as we're building those systems, are we meeting our water conservation needs? What are those new technologies that are available? And, and making sure that as we're building the team, I think it's all about the team 
making getting out there and making sure that the communities have the information they need to relay to the engineer, their consulting engineer, what they're after, what they're shooting for, what their goals are. And kind of our job is as New Mexico Rural Water is, is we get out there and we kind of help build these relationships and also provide some kind of information on applications that are available and what might be a best application for that particular community. Those are some of the challenges that we're facing here in New Mexico. What do you what do you got to add to that, Fred? Um so um of course, you know, you said it from the beginning there, Ray, uh flow rates. Mm-hmm. Uh you were talking about, you know, the changes in the seasons. So one of the biggest challenges that we do see is trying to maintain those flow rates uh, so you can get the adequate treatment through your treatment plant. And, uh, and with the seasonal changes, that can be that can be a big factor. So, Fred, is that like too much? I would say, is that too much and too little? Too much and too little. You want to keep a constant flow going through these treatment plants. And you'd be surprised how many systems out there don't have the EQ chambers to, uh, to retain water to maintain those constant flows. So, you know, we get these these systems that are going to be out here trying to run these systems and manage them the best they can manually because uh, there's a lot of these systems that don't even have SCADA uh, to do it mm-hmm. automatically for them. And yeah. so if they're in there trying to maintain uh, their treatment, uh, so if you get a slug of mud, you know, of course that's going to change what's going to happen in your outfall if you're not there to make sure it's being treated right. And, and, of course, you know, one of the other big challenges is going to be, do we have enough operators to run this water treatment plant? A lot of these systems, because they're so small, uh, they, they've got one operator and, mm-hmm. and only one. Some have two, but we don't have the capability or do the towns or the small communities have the funds to pay somebody to be there on second shift, third shift just not going to happen. Okay, these, these are very small communities we're talking about here, uh, rural water communities. So mm-hmm. flow is one of the big issues. Uh, variable and turbidity, of course, can be contributed from the flows coming in, but it can also be contributed to, uh, if you're dealing with surface water out of a river or a lake, seasonal changes. So, you know, you, you get these overturn these turnovers in your lakes, uh, oh, yeah. twice a year. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It just, it, then you're getting these shots. So, understanding when your turnovers are going to occur and be prepared for them, be ready to handle that when it does come through. That's going to take probably some more extra time. Unless, uh, again, if you've got properly sized uh, EQ basins and you've got SCADA system that will read this stuff on a regular basis, then hopefully your automatic system will take over and be able to manage that. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's uh, that's two of the biggest, I think. Yeah. One of the other one is uh, your secondary waste. You know, how do we handle our secondary waste? You know, Ray talked about fluoride, and he talks about you know uh, all these other contaminants, arsenic that we're dealing with. Well, then we got to get rid of that waste. So I was like, don't you just send it down to this <laughs> wastewater system? You can, can send it down it. to the waste. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, those guys are gonna love you. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but 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 yeah, there are there are some systems that believe it or not that their their discharge permit for 
receiving those backwashes, they, they actually have groundwater discharge permits. Oh. And they can be in evaporative ponds. Mm-hmm. And if they're in an evaporative pond, they still have to meet those contaminant levels in the evaporative pond. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it seems a little ridiculous. But yeah, we do have a couple of those systems out there that send it to evaporative ponds. And they have to meet, without monitoring wells, they have to meet levels in those evaporative ponds. And that, to me, is just crazy. So handling that secondary waste can be a problem sometimes. I, I remember when I visited a system and they were so excited about the new chlorinator that they had. And uh, I'm like, so they're like, yeah, we just had an issue. We had to dump a bunch of chlorine. I'm like, wait a minute, where did it go? <laughs> they're like, oh, it just goes down the sanitary drain. I'm like, oh, you, you've lost some friends today. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> they might be, they might become part of the, uh, uh, the source of bacteria if well, they keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Our friends might just throw them right down the drain. There you go. Let's remember, yeah. though. that manhole um, lid? Here in <laughs> small town America, uh, a lot of times those water operators are also the wastewater guys as well. So, yeah. Right. Well, and, and the dog catcher and the, you know, whatever else. But. That's right. So uh, usually those guys are on top of it. Yeah, when we're dealing with the bigger cities and everything, it's like you get one job and one job only. And so, but when you're in rural America, they wear all hats and we all know that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we talked about the AQ basin and the secondary waste. What else makes up a, a potable water system? You know, starts with, uh, could start with your intake. You know, your, your screening system mm-hmm. coming in. Uh, which probably, you know, sometimes can go into a desilting basin, could go into a, a raw water storage area after that. And, and then from there, go into maybe a pump station in through a UV, uh, which is now one of the most recommended uh, and, and becoming widely used in potable water as well. And again, going into hopefully that uh, mm-hmm. that right application for that particular system, and then you've you've got your finish water storage, you've got your distribution system. So these systems, there's a lot more to them than we may visualize when we're thinking about them. Yeah, a lot of people say that the system is just this piece of equipment right here. But as you said, it's all the distribution system as well. Well, and again, yeah. all the collection system. So, I mean, it starts at the yeah. collection system and it ends at your distribution system. So, and everything in between. You know, they turn on the faucet and the, and there's no water. Well, the pump must have went out. You know, that's uh, <laughs> usually they equate water to a, to a pump and really don't understand everything else that goes into it. Okay. And, you know, I, I just, that brings up funny stories of, uh, you know, being an operator for many years and the phone calls that we receive from customers is just, and you're right, Ray, they really don't understand. But I remember getting called out for uh, no hot water. Well, that's because right. our hot water tank on the hill ran out. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, maybe so. that one's not you guys. <laughs> <laughs> or the fish eggs in the water. I, I don't know how many times that's happened to me. Uh, you know, because the screen went out in their water softener or whatever. But yeah, 
it, a lot of people, they turn on the tap, and if something's not working right, then they're going to call the water company right away. You know, I, I have actually only had one experience with that. Um, I think they were chlorinated in a line for a reason, and I turned on the tap, and it smelled like a swimming pool <laughs> to the point where I had to turn on vents. I mean, every tap smelled that strong. <laughs> And I did call the water system because <laughs> <laughs> I knew that wasn't <laughs> my system that was doing that. <laughs> okay, so when you're going to go troubleshoot, you know, what are you looking for? What are the first things you want them to tell you? Other, you, you know what? You want flow. Yeah, you want as many details to that system as possible. And, and you know, typically nine times out of ten or, or you know, at, at least uh, seven times out of 10, issues that come up are related to two or three different items. Make sure that uh, that you're getting all that information. These guys really have a good uh, overall understanding of their system. Yeah, just go in and start that conversation and, and you'd be amazed at uh, how well these guys understand their system and, and how much information can come out of that. Let's say we've got a multimedia conventional type treatment system, and we've got uh, turbidity issues. We're just not able to uh, dial that turbidity down. And, you know, usually it's the dial knob that's stuck. And, you know, you just go over there and hit it a couple of times and, man, we're boom, we're there. Really, that's not the way it works. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, that's been tried before we got there. They, they've kicked things and, yeah. Oh, you can't so kickstart it? Kickstart's broken it by that time. You know, where do we start? Oh, okay. We started at raw water. Let's see what, what's going on. Guys, let's start from the beginning. Do we have runoff issues that are coming in? An increase in, in TOCs, you know. So something like that actually could be as simple as raising or lowering a draft line from your raw water storage pond. Or it could be something uh, that's contributing in in a more specific chemical type influence where, you know, maybe you had some illegal dumping upstream and we need to test the pH to identify what what uh, what we might, is it toxic or, or what might be coming in? Oh, come on. That never happens, Ray, in the middle of the night <laughs> over a weekend. <laughs> never, never. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> But we had a, uh, you know, we had a situation with a school, Ray, that uh, I think I remember telling you about that one. So we were called out because they were getting real high disinfectant byproducts. And so the state had issued an AO on it. And so we got over there, and, of course, we found the treatment plant wasn't working the way it should have been. And one of the chambers had been offline for probably seven, eight years uh, due to a break in the line. But one of their biggest problems that they were struggling with was boron. And so they had to remove the boron. When we opened up the tanks and looked inside the tanks, the tanks were just dark, dark, dark brown coated on the inside. And so all this iron and boron and everything was just sticking to the tanks. Now, the thing about the river is it's full of a lot of different minerals, full of hot springs, uh, sulfur springs. And so they get a lot of contaminants down that river. Uh, for drinking water, they sh they should be removing, and and it just didn't stop there. The uh, uh, of course they were trying to disinfect in doses because they weren't tied into when the pump came on. So then they were over chlorinating at times, 
And then their backwash water and then the water going out into the, going down to the treatment plant, they had a boron limit. And uh, so they exceeded their boron limit, and then they got hammered by EPA on that as well. That, that's just, you know, one of the, the types of chemicals or, or minerals that can come in and really affect the system really bad. And, and right. the thing is, is it doesn't magically go away. I mean, in boron, you're just moving mass, right. basically. So, and I think that that's hard as well. You know, how do you deal with something that's now contaminated? Right. I've seen systems that have to has waste, you know, some of their their uh, media because of someone sending something down, and they couldn't take a chance of something, you know, uh, the toxic stuff sloughing off, so they had to replace the media. And, that and that was right. also a really bad day. And, and so when like when you know, when engineers are designing these systems, uh, that's one thing that they really ought to be taking into effect is what is it going to cost to replace this media to the system? And a lot of them do. Uh, a lot of engineers do do that. But uh, we were in Illinois a few years ago, and we were doing a site visit on this site, and they could have tied into the town three miles away and got good water. But instead, mm -hmm. they designed a treatment plant, and I think it was for like three, 300 hookups or something. And, and just like you said, Heather, they had to change their media once a year. And the cost to change it, because it was hauled out as hazardous waste, the cost to do that was just phenomenal in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So to, to put that on your customer is, is just phenomenal. Especially when you just don't have that many customers. Do, do you guys yeah. really want to start that conversation? <laughs> we, well, you know, we're not going to talk. I don't think it's going to be healthy to talk about the systems that the piping configuration. It was a good dream, but it ended up a nightmare uh, for the for the operator of the community, or a system that was developed to remove fluoride. And community had 900 thermos taps. Just the chemical involved to operate this system, according to manufacturer recommendation, would cost the community $30,000 every three months. <gasps> so, but we're oh. not going to talk about those things. Um, but uh, what I'd like for us to talk about is is the till the team building. You know, let's make sure we've got that relationship and the understanding of that relationship uh, between community leaders, operators, and consultants. Um, I think that's where we began to start solving a lot of these problems that occur out there. <laughs> yeah, I I honestly think that operators should be at the table for the discussion. Almost that's definitely. A must. That, that, yeah, that makes a difference if, if the people who are running the system and running the current system are there to say, yeah, that's great, but what happens during this time? You know, like you're saying, seasonal issues, or that's great, but what happens, you know, when we get a toxic hit of something or algae in the system we can't handle? Uh, right. I think... 
Right. I think that's important to have there mm-hmm. at, the, at the table. Yeah, that's absolutely yes. absolutely yeah. a must. We rely on these these individuals out there in the field to, you know, run these systems. And believe me, these guys over the years have developed a wealth of knowledge. And that really is where any of these projects should begin is, you know, let's have that that discussion. Let's uh, record some of that information uh, from the knowledge provided by these individuals. And let's build that that uh, application, that that right application for these communities. You know, Ray, oh. uh, we've been doing the uh, – I'm no no longer in the wastewater program anymore, but Ray and I, we were the wastewater techs, and Ray is still for New Mexico Rural Water. But we do the self-sustainability classes and, uh, on systems, and that basically is what it does. It brings in operators. It brings in admin people, the decision makers, sometimes the mayors, and we put them all at the same table, and uh, we talk about self-sustainability, their needs. We actually build a uh, program for them so they can start working on it, uh, on what their priorities are, and then we go back and we work with them on it. You know, the one thing that's missing out of that, Ray, are are the consultants. Maybe that's something that we probably ought to look at is getting consultants involved in right, these classes right. as well. well. Hold on, Fred. Let me let me take off my water hat and that's put it. on my wastewater real quick. Okay. Yeah. I'm ready now. Uh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, you guys are awesome. All right, we let's switch it up. Let's talk about wastewater um, then. Okay. So, what are the basic? What are the so basic systems yeah, that you be, have in New Mexico? Before we move on to to just specific wastewater, I wanted to touch on on what Fred was was talking about rural water and, and part of what we do and bringing these these people to the same table, administration and, and operation. And it, it really is a, a unique position that rural water sits in where, you know, we're, we've been given an opportunity to bridge a path between these engineers and, and operators and administration. And it really has, I think, a highly important place in in moving forward in these communities and really really in a nation um, because these shortfalls or, or these these problems that occurred aren't just here in New Mexico they're everywhere you know right. I, I, oh yeah oh yeah I do domestic travel and I see it at right. every state so. right but you're right Fred I think um, right. a missing component in those uh, sustainable uh, management trainings so yeah we're gonna have we're gonna have to We'll have to talk to uh, somebody. <laughs> we'll start with Bill, right? Right. <laughs> All right. Like, talk to somebody. Okay. So back to my question: What are the basic wastewater systems you guys have in New Mexico? Okay. So it's going to be extended aeration, of course. Uh, we have SBRs. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more MBRs popping up, and again with you know. With that type of technology, one of the best out there today, every time I turn around, there's a new one popping up. And then there's a new one popping up. So what was it, MBVRs a couple of years ago? And now there's something else out there, MBCR. But majority of what you see is extended aeration, 
SBRs. We see some RBCs. And, of course, uh, in the rural communities, more or less, we're dealing with a lot of lagoons. <laughs> oh, lagoons. I love lagoons. I know you do. It's right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I've never met the same lagoon twice. Oh, no. I've never met the same wastewater system either twice, but. <laughs> well, you need to go over a few of them then. <laughs> Because they all I do, I do. <laughs> you know, the best part about going out on a lagoon with a boat is the the operators when they get out on the boat. You know, first thing I tell them when I get them in the boat is, so I have one rule: you fall in. Oh, do, do you tell them to leave leave Don't the fishing pole at home, Fred? Is that what you yeah. tell them as well? Okay. Well, if I could, I just I I yeah. 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 But you know what? The, the fun part is when they all want to row. Let me do the rowing. You do the sludge judging. Let me do the rowing. And before it's all over with, usually I'm doing the rowing and they're doing the sludge judging because we'll sit there and go in the circle for an hour before we get five feet. Right. But right. Uh, so, because yeah, said something that's uh, <laughs> very important is he was recently in the wastewater program and due to some national funding cuts we lost one of the programs that fred was in and heather you said that man you you've met a lot mm -hmm. of uh lagoons fred has i think met every lagoon here in in new mexico uh he's the go-to guy for building uh those uh sludge judging surveys and you know what that's I, i'm not sure how we're going to fill his shoes well, Ray, it sounds yeah, like you're well, going to learn. You know, I, Ray, it sounds like yeah, you're going to learn how I'll to tell row. You, it's on the list. <laughs> it's on the list, but it's not in the front of the list. All right, fair enough. Okay, so when these operators saying, "Hey, I have an issue. I I not meeting my permit. Have turbidity issues or whatever." How do you start troubleshooting the wastewater systems? Well, again, you're going to go in and you're going to you're going to obtain as much information as possible, and understanding that uh, you're shooting for an understanding whether do we have a mechanical issue, do we have a biological issue, or is it operational? Again, you're going to go in and 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 just try to get as obtain as much information as possible from from your operators here recently i i was called into a system they were they were having settling issues and after getting information uh, what's your ph uh ph was normal uh what what should be coming in as you know under normal conditions so we understood right away that it wasn't or it shouldn't have been toxic what does your settability look like and looking at that, we recognize that, man, we just didn't have any bugs. That we, our population was gone. Ooh. So, and of course, we're looking at, at a few things that typically three things that it, it's related to in most of these, uh, in most of, most of these problems are, come from either operation, mechanical, or biological. So, <laughs> as we were discussing, uh, the so operator <laughs> mentioned the startup of a new uh, lift station, a fairly large lift station out in collection. And 
that we found that to be contributing. The pumps that were used were really large pumps, which when they turned on, they were doubling the amount of design flow for that particular system. So we had some hydraulic washout, but guess what? That wasn't the only oh. thing <laughs> that was happening there. No, <laughs> oh, it's not. It's not. And, you, and really, a no, it never is. It's is, never just one thing. Know, we're looking for three <laughs> items to identify. And so what we found out is they also added aeration into that uh-huh. large monstrosity of a lift station. What we had was we, we were introducing, we were beginning nitrification right there at the, at the lift station. Yeah. And so we actually had treatment process station. before the treatment. And what we found on the bottom of that large basin, a lot of settled sludge. So the solids that should have been arriving at the plant uh, were right there in, in the new settling basin. <laughs> oh, the new settling okay. basin. <laughs> the new settling basin. Don't you mean EQ? You know, so, <laughs> the new EQ settling yeah. clarifier. You name it, we had it right there. Sequencing uh, batch reactor. But so one of the problems that recently we've we've uh, worked with, but. Um, what do you? What have you run into out there, Fred? Oh my goodness, uh, I've ran into just a little bit of everything. Of course, it, it can be pump failures. It, it could oh, be yeah. uh, diffuser failures. Uh, there, the majority of the problems I see is most, especially these smaller communities, they don't waste enough, and so then I get I get my clarifier blanket. Uh, I'll get my blankets all the way up to the surface. Oh. That's been one of my biggest problems with people uh, is wasting. Quick question, Fred. Yes. Does uh, engineers have any business in operation? Boy, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a tough one, Rick. <laughs> well, okay. That's that's a tough one. One. Moving on. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, the uh, regulatories, let, let me go ahead and just uh, say a little something about that. You know, regulatories are really pushing to have somebody there to cover multiple shifts. And, and that's really hard to do in these small communities. It's almost impossible. When we get, when we do these contracts with anybody, uh, whether it be engineers or it's, it's consultants or whatever, when you do these contacts, you still aren't going to have a person there 24/7. You're not going to have you're not going to have a person standing there for eight hours a day, let alone two hours a day. Oh, is that needed? So you know, the, you, I think I think the regulatory there? says it's needed. That's <laughs> what the regulatory say, and that's uh, that's almost impossible to do. And so again. These systems need to look at that and they need to outweigh, do we want to hire a consultant to come in? Because I'll tell you right now, consultants aren't cheap. And, or do we want to hire somebody to be here uh, for eight hours? Uh, of course, I would always go with have somebody here for eight hours to watch that plant. So yeah. well, I, I, that's and, and, and again, Ray, that's another problem is we don't have eyes on the plant enough. Right. So when something, a change does occur, they're not going to catch it. And some of these systems don't catch it for days. So do you think maybe even warranties can can run out of time because of that lack of presence? Um, things 
Oh, and so it did happen recently to us. Yeah, is that why you brought that oh, up, right? I, I don't know. No, it did happen question. recently. <laughs> yeah. it, it does happen, and, and I've seen it happen recently where they, they, they hired engineers to take over a plant and run it right away from day one. And then when somebody comes in and takes it over, they have a failed screen that's not under warranty. Uh, it was a cooler unit that kept all the controller panel cooled down. It was a very large control panel kept it cooled down. And today, that system has one of those little store-bought coolers that's set with the doors open and points up into it and, and forces cold air into it. But the warranty ran out on it months prior under the watchful eye of the same firm that actually installed the system. And so, yes, I think if they're going to do it, then they need to really watch the people that they're putting in place. Uh, this having people there for short times, it's just not working. Yeah, well, you know, backing up to that, that story I just gave before yours is, do you think potentially the design of that uh, monstrosity of a lift station might have been a, a misfigure or, you know, a misapplication, adding aer aeration into that, probably some operator experience or or communication would have been helpful, huh? Right. I still don't understand why they installed the air there uh, unless they just want it. I, I still don't know. I, I still don't know why they were adding air. On the, the side of the engineers, I know a lot of times you get from customers, well, we don't want any odors. We don't want it to you know, do this. And so to meet those specifications, you're and you're not evaluating mm -hmm. the whole system. You're not paid to do that. You, so you focus in on that section that you're paid to do and that the operator the customers right. so that are telling you that they want and i think there i think there are sometimes mismatches but i think a lot of times we also need more information from the customers they're like don't worry about that i only want you to do this you know the, the whole idea of evaluating the whole system to ensure that we're maintaining what you have or supporting the system you have i think that's important to bring to right. the table as you, well how do you feel about the conversation that uh, concept including bringing every individual to the table. You think that might be helpful? I think it's invaluable. It's a consistent issue I see across the U.S. where there's that disconnect. And that's the whole point of this podcast is to talk about that. But what I see sometimes is the very high people who are responsible because it's a whole lot of money. And then they just <laughs> hand it to the operators and, you know, like, peace out, good luck. Peace out, good luck. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Hope it works. Well, and, and it is. It's, yeah. I see the. Uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, it's very bad. And again, what I also notice is the operation manuals that are been given to these operators when they walk away from a design that, or a build. Let's go back to build. Uh, sometimes they're really not complete. Uh, the troubleshooting guide's not really complete. And uh, the training. Uh, to have a manufacturer come in and train somebody, he flies in for a day, he goes, spends a few hours, and then he leaves, and now the operator is supposed to understand it completely. I, I'd like to see that time increase uh, training on, on these mm -hmm. new systems. I would love to see that. Well, and I, I think I'd love to see something where, you know, the operator doesn't go, well, it's somewhere in those books, <laughs> and there's three six-inch binders or, you know... <laughs> 
huge books that they're supposed and to pour you open through. That book, and yeah, you know, every not... little device that is in that plant, whether it be a bolt or a nut or a wire, is on a page. And yeah, and so it takes a lot. I mean, so if the guide is okay and he's got a place to go into that book and be able to finger his way and get get right to a resource he can use. Uh, again, the troubleshooting guide. And I, I have seen some really good ones. You know, it's just, right, you know, those exactly. operators. Uh, a good operator will definitely at it use as well. that as a, as a reference uh, sometimes daily. And and one of the things I'll mention is on on the water side here in New Mexico, one thing where they have improved on on that exact thing that you mentioned, Fred and, and Heather, is that sometimes these binders come with every switch, every component that is involved in that system. But on the water side, what NMEG Drinking Water Bureau is requiring now is in addition to that O&M manual, they want an OMP. Now, this is a specific binder that identifies operation standards mainly. Uh, so they're not, it doesn't include every electric solenoid or, you know, every piece to that plant, which are, again, those are all you know, you've got to have that information as well, but it's really geared more towards uh, the basis of operation. A little bit easier to understand, a little bit uh, less information. Yeah. And and I might mention at this point, too, that one of the roles we play uh, in rural water is we're required by USDA, when it's a, a USDA-involved funded project, is to review these manuals. And you know what? I'd I get to be involved in that uh, on occasion, and I, I think it's it's really allowed me to to help the operators and making sure that the important stuff is in there and and get these engineers to to make sure that that all that important uh -huh. information is available to these guys, whether it's on a piece of equipment or uh, operation procedure. So. So I think that's that's one of the things that I've really learned to appreciate about the program we're in is, you know what, we get to help these guys identify whether we're missing any kind of uh, vital information within those those manuals. You know, I, I keep hearing more and more hats that rural water gets to wear. Oh, yeah. Let me change again. Here we go. <laughs> no, but I do appreciate that. That I think that makes a big difference, and it makes a difference uh, whether the operator will open it or not. It goes both ways. You're not going to build yes. a bridge just from one yes. side. It's got to be built from both sides. Right, right. Everybody has to come together and work together, no doubt. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Well, so with that, is there anything else you guys wanted to cover before we go into the, the last portion? Uh, I do want to thank uh, Biogenesis product because I want to tell you that uh, you guys have saved us across the uh, across the state with having to pump out a lot of these lagoons. You've been real helpful to us, and we sure appreciate all you guys have done for us out in the field. Uh, you know, as you know, if we exceed 30% in these lagoons on sludge, and I've had a few I've been called out to that we were pushing it or we were over it a little bit, and uh, that product has really bought us way underneath 20% plus. So oh, yeah. uh, I, I do want to thank you for that, Heather, for helping us out over the years. Well, you guys uh, are pretty really awesome, too. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Thanks for the shout out. Well, now I want to segue into Wanda's water tidbit. 
So Wanda is my mother. And for years, she's been sending me articles and trivia and stuff on water and asking my opinion about it. And so I figured we'd dedicate this section to her and sharing some of the fun and sometimes brilliant things in water. Go with me with this, guys, okay? Because this is going to be kind of interesting. I found an article It's titled, Taking a Shine to It, How the Preference for Glossy Stems from an Innate Need for Water. And Katrine Mert, uh, Mario Padelleri, and Vanessa Patrick, and I'm sorry if I've slotted the names, did a, a series of six tests, and they included children's and adults, you know, groups as small as 36, up to 120, depending on what test they did. And they did all this to rule out what they called socialization of shiny items. So that means people telling you that a shiny item is good. And they also wanted to eliminate that anything that was glossy equaled pretty. Okay. And for some reason, a bunch of chrome came into my mind. I saw that. But uh, <laughs> so what we found out or what they found out was that since fresh water has a shiny surface, being drawn to shiny surfaces increases that probability of finding fresh water when we're back in our caveman days. And that therefore increased our chances mm-hmm. for survival. So I, I was thinking about that. And I'm like, I'm thinking of chrome. I'm thinking of uh, glitter, uh, you know, like the glossy magazine pages, right. all that kind of stuff. I know I've gone to, uh, uh, it was actually an industrial site and they, they had this piece of equipment that was stainless steel <laughs> and by gum, it looked awesome. And uh, the guy's like, yeah, that's a sexy <laughs> piece of equipment. I'm like, Dang right, that is awesome looking. And who knew it was because it's shiny. You know? Yes. Well, it's because shiny is clean, right? Yeah. Uh, that's right. But that's not true. always the case, right? So let's uh, let's let's put it into a lagoon situation. I had a lagoon system that was looked like uh-huh. a blue lagoon. It was beautiful. You'd want to go jump in it. <gasps> But the pH in that water was three. Yeah, so not all that glitters. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> sometimes it's not always good. Yeah, so yeah. Not all that right. glitters is gold, um, of course. <laughs> but you know, the next time I see some some truck completely <laughs> blinged out in chrome, I would be they're thirsty. They're thirsty. That's all it is to it. <laughs> they're thirsty. Take a lot of water but to get up there, huh? That's all the heat radiant. That's right. Did yeah, make it that pretty. I really want to thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, we've covered a lot of topics in in the water and wastewater industry and how we can work as a community in sustaining these systems. So I really appreciate your time and really appreciate you know New Mexico Rural Water. You guys do a great job. You really try to support the communities, and I've I've loved that aspect of visiting in New Mexico where you are a community of people that have each other's backs. So kudos to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, it takes a team. Well, thank you. Yeah, no we problem. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having us on. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time in our next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.